conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined by Curtis Clow, and we are talking all about Beastlands. Curtis, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, thank you for having me. Of course, and I am always thrilled when comic book writers and or artists reach out to me and want to be on the podcast because it gives me a chance to read more comics. It gives me an excuse. I'm like, no, I have to do this because it's for the podcast. (laughs) And Beastlands is in the fantasy genre, if you will, which I will admit is not something that I've read a ton of. I grew up reading the Harry Potter books. Yeah. But within comics, it's been a genre that I've kind of jumped in and out of a little bit, some of the more fantastical and magical stuff. But for the listeners who haven't read the comic, can you give a quick rundown of the premise? Yeah, definitely. So Beastlands is a uh, fantasy action adventure. It's a world where some people have these companion beasts known as keepers. These are like lifelong beasts that start little and they grow to be about the size of a horse. They're mountable. You can like put a saddle on them and all their gear. And it's about a boy that has to save his friends and beasts before a tyrannical king tries to execute them all. I had a lot of fun reading the first five issues. And if I'm not mistaken, there are seven issues out right now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we we, uh, we kickstarted up to seven issues. Uh, the, the trade with Dark Horse is going to be the first five. So we're, we've already started working on volume two, which will be issues six through ten. Awesome. And since we are in the age of remote work, I wanted to ask you about your collaborators, Joe and Tobin, who are the artist and letterer, respectively, because it feels like now a lot of comics are being made in a way that maybe they couldn't before, you know, when you had really just the big two and maybe a few other companies back in you know, the 60s through the 80s, let's say, before Image came about and all of these other companies, it felt like it was a very Mm -hmm. small community, pretty much in New York only. (laughs) So yeah, right. it seems like things have been able to expand. And there are times where people won't even have met their collaborators. It's more of an online thing. Was that how it was for you starting out with Beastlands? Yeah, 100%. And it still is. I mean, that's how most of my series are. Like, I I rarely talk to any of my artists or collaborators, like even hear their voice. We communicate mostly through like some type of messenger or emails and just kind of lucky to live in this time where you can work with artists all over the world and find their amazing art. And yeah, it it definitely was not possible back then. I mean, you had, uh, I guess, the language barrier, which now you have things like Google Translate and so much other like software that can help you with that. And um and then, yeah, with just the email and Google Drive, Google Docs, Dropbox, like all of these tools that you can use to work with these artists all around the world. And uh, for, for this one specifically, Joe's based out of South Korea. So English is not even her first language. But luckily, she's very good at speak or very good at reading and speaking it. And she's able to translate my scripts and emails and we communicate great and have a pretty smooth process now that we've been working together for a few years. Yeah, it feels like it really does open up so many opportunities that were just closed off before because of the nature of how comics were made. And the fact that you couldn't even do anything digitally at one point in time, too, is wild. Mm -hmm. But it feels like a lot of people are able to get their own things going. And, you know, you had started this 
before Dark Horse had picked it up. And it seems like Kickstarter has been a fantastic way to have more creator-owned options out there for people. Because even though I'm someone who has you know, one shelf on my bookshelf dedicated to image comics, pretty much. And then, you know, some others from Boom and some other studios here and there. There's still so many comics that could be made digitally first and then go to print. And I think that's something we're seeing with Comixology right now, where they have their Comixology and Comixology originals. And then I believe it is Dark Horse who is printing a bunch of those too. So yeah, it is. For you, was it important to be able to sort of fund these first several issues yourselves and then go to a company and be like, hey, we have this. It's already done. We just want to print copy of it. Yeah, 100%. Like it's, uh, this is only my second comic series ever. uh, And it's Joe's actually first comic series. For as amazing as her art is, she's only getting better. And as uh, we were fairly new creators back in 2018, when we first started working on Beastlands and it would have been hard to, to get a pitch, no matter how good your pitch is and stuff. It's just, uh, it's hard being new and breaking into the industry. So you always hear these like veteran creators that say the way to break in is to make stuff. And then we're just so lucky to live in a time where crowdfunding and Kickstarter exists, where we don't have to just get loans and use credit cards and get in debt to make these stuff, uh, to make these comics, to try to break in. We can, uh, we can use Kickstarter to actually get funding to make the books and, and gain a following. And it's really worked in our favor and been beneficial. And now I'm actually, I'm actually glad that we came up this way because we've been able to grow to such a following where those first few Kickstarters, like it was a grind and a struggle. Yeah. And like, we, we would just like barely get funded on one of the last days, but now we get like funded in a matter of hours and we've just have a, a fan base that keeps coming back and it keeps growing. So just really fortunate on there. Like I think we've launched six or seven Kickstarts for Beastlands. One was for like a full orchestra album. We have like a theme song and stuff. So it's just, uh, it's just awesome. Yeah, I, I don't see us ever leaving Kickstarter now. And it's the best of both worlds where you can go from Kickstarter, it's all creator owned, to then find a publisher like we did with Dark Horse who can now distribute the trade and find like a much wider and different audience. Like it's, it's such a different audience in comic shops and bookstores, like so many readers that don't use Kickstarter to like buy books and stuff. So can kind of hit both of the markets with Kickstarter and uh, the direct market. Yeah, there was obviously a spike in stuff that I personally saw on Kickstarter in the comics world once the pandemic hit because everything came to a screeching halt. And I backed so many things on Kickstarter that I was just forgetting about them and I would have stuff show up and I'm like, what is this? (laughs) You know, (laughs) or I would get the updates from the creators like months later, hey, the books have shipped. And I'm like, oh, I totally forgot about this thing. It's like a nice little surprise. <laughs> yeah, whenever I back Kickstarters, like I'm, I'm a, as a creator, I'm also a big fan of books from Kickstarter. I think I've backed like over 90 projects and it's always like a nice little treat when you always like forget you back something, like even board games and stuff. And it just pops in like Christmas, just months later. It's cool. Yeah, I don't think I'm quite at 90 just yet, but I was backing a lot of anthology series on Kickstarter. And it's such Mm -hmm. a great way to just get a group of people together and get their stories out. I backed some stuff from Matt Emmons, who is the co-host of Comics Inebriated. I backed quite a few things that Shelley Bond has worked on. And it's just such a great way to find out about other creators too, especially with the anthology stuff. Because, you know, I backed a few things where there's like 20 different 
writers and artists on this one project. And then you can kind of go down this rabbit hole of checking out their stuff individually, you know, based on what stories you liked from the anthology. Or if you liked all of them, then you have a lot of work to do, which is my case with some of these. But, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here looking at the image titles. And to your point, as a new creator, it is hard because I'm looking and it's like all of these image titles that I have pretty much are from people who are big names in comics like Matt Fraction, Robert Kirkman, yeah. Ed Brubaker mm-hmm. and Sean Phillips, you know, Jeff Lemire. So these are titles that are by people who had already done stuff with like Marvel or DC before their creator owned stuff came mm-hmm. out. So it still seems like it's tough on a discovery level. And I talk about this a lot with podcasts too, because it's like, yeah, you have every single podcast available at your fingertips. But how do you find the ones you actually want to listen to? Because the podcast apps aren't great at recommending you podcasts. So it really is like word of mouth. And I had started following more comics creators just during the pandemic in general, because I was talking about comics more for this podcast, and I wanted to have more creators on. And, you know, I am actually going to be ending this podcast somewhat soon, but I'm still glad that I've been able to have conversations like this with creators like yourself and some of the other people I've had on because it's just such a fascinating industry. And I think it is changing a lot right now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. We're kind of in a renaissance. Like we said, with all the crowdfunding stuff, there's also so many new like creator owned publishers that you can work with. Like as a, it's a great time to be trying to break into the industry where it is hard to get like obviously work for the yeah. big two. That's that's its own uh, its own feat to try to work for. But I mean, my dream publisher is obviously like Image as somebody who loves creator own publishers. But it's not like you're not going to work for Image right away, most likely, uh, unless you're just super lucky. Like it's going to take some time to build up your uh, build up your experience, get better at your craft, and then eventually you can probably get that Image series. That's like that's like the dream. But we are we are in a renaissance and uh, and I think people look at Kickstarter where they see that there's actually quality books on there. Like I think a good number of years ago when I first started on there, it was uh, kind of looked at as as like lower quality, I feel like. And now since the pandemic, really, that, that's when my Kickstarters really took another leap. And uh, I was kind of worried like with the pandemic, whereas I still going to be able to like launch Kickstarters and make books where people still going to back it. But then it, it actually worked in our favor with comic shops shutting down. And it was, it was like for a little bit, there it was the only spot to get books. And then you had these big creators like Scott Snyder and Boom Studios and Keanu Reeves yeah. and everybody going on there. And it, it just really like brought a lot of attention to, attention to the platform. And that helps too, because when you go to back something on Kickstarter, like the, those big projects from Keanu and Scott Snyder, you will get recommended other stuff yeah. as soon as you back those. So I think even though some people were probably like, oh, why does Boom Studios need to kickstart this? It's Keanu, like they should just be able to sell pre-orders basically on their own website. But I think it was still good for, like you were saying, awareness. And, you know, I'm looking at my shelf again here because it's right next to me. And Dark Horse is doing some cool stuff too, because I'm a big horror fan. So the fact that they're doing a lot of stuff with the old EC comics and reprinting those has just been great. I have a couple of the Tales from the Crypt trades sitting on my shelf waiting to be read because so many of my books are waiting to be read, but that's another problem for another day. But yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah. To bring it back to Beastlands, I, I get sidetracked here because I love talking industry stuff, but <laughs> the story and the art 
on this just work so well together. And you were saying that, you know, even though English is not Joe's first language, because of all the technology available, you're able to work through it. And I just have to say, I love the character designs in this. I think the keepers are fantastic and our main characters are just so well done because it's not one of those things where every once in a while you'll read a comic where sometimes some of the characters can look a little too much like the same and it makes it a little hard to distinguish like, okay, who's who here? But I think these characters are all unique and it was just so fun going on this little journey with them through these first five issues, especially. Oh, it's awesome to hear. Yeah, that's all to Joe's credit. Like, I'm just so lucky that I've found such a great collaborator and we just have a good time working together. And, and it's, a, it's a true collaboration where it's just not me writing and her drawing. Like, it's, a, it's her adding to it and putting her own spin on things. And, like, I'm giving her character descriptions and my ideas for the beat designs. And then she's always just blowing my mind, coming back with better art. So it's one of the best and most fun parts of being a writer is when you get like pages in your inbox every week and it just uh, makes your day when you see that you get to see the amazing art first. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for the character designs, like she would come back with, uh, I would give her ideas and she would come back with like a bunch of different concepts. And uh, some of it would be like more medieval themed and then like we had the other far side where it was like mm-hmm. more fantasy themed and we usually ended up like somewhere in the middle for the character designs like a mi- mix of like fantasy and uh medieval for like this hopefully like an original look for the characters yeah and i don't want to spoil anything because i want people to go read this but within these first five issues you have a story arc where it starts in one place and you're not really sure where it's going to go and you have the characters splitting up for a short period of time. And I think that really helps with the pacing because I'm always worried with story arcs that the pacing is going to be weird because sometimes, you know, especially when you're reading something like an ongoing from Marvel or DC, you'll have story arcs that are like seven issues and then others that are three. And I think five is sort of the perfect amount depending on what kind of story you're telling and the fact that you have your three main characters they get separated and they have to try to find their way back to each other helps a lot with that because if they had all stayed together you would obviously have to change up the story a bit to account for that and be like okay well we don't have all of these problems to overcome because they're all still together. So then you have to figure out how to work it that way. So I did enjoy that, you know, you had this group of kids splitting up and sort of going through the motions themselves and then being reunited. It was just something that I think worked really well story-wise. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you like that. That's uh, It's very much like uh, part of the theme of the story is kind of uh, needing others and needing your friends and needing your family. And I'm working on volume two right now, uh, writing like the last three issues of volume two. And it's, it's a very similar pacing where they're kind of split up and you get to see like what's happening at these different parts of the world that world with them before, uh, before the end when, where they get reunited. Yeah. And within these first five issues, you have not necessarily a firm ending, but it's also sort of like, it's not necessarily a cliffhanger, but you're just like, oh, oh no, what happened? <laughs> and you could see what happened on the page. So I won't give it away, like I said again, but I think that is also very crucial to be able to end a story arc and still leave that sort of little cliffhanger to want 
the readers to keep reading and not have it feel so finite, I guess. Yeah, I mean, just uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of images catalog, like we said, and I think they do a lot of their books do a great job telling these finite stories rather than like the big two, which seem to go on forever and never actually have like an act three in the story. But, um, but yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, that's, that's what I like writing is these stories that do have an ending and the end of volume one is kind of like the middle of this, uh, this story with this main antagonist, the, uh, the evil King. So in volume two, we get to see it continue and how, uh, how that affects the characters, uh, how that volume one ended. Yeah, I am definitely going to keep reading this. So I will be excited when volume two comes out because I am a trade waiter, I must admit. <laughs> I, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a writer, I am too. It, it's uh, it's hard to have time to read comics and make them. So it's, it's a lot easier when you're able to get that nice trade and just power through. Yeah. And I think that's also an advantage to Kickstarter because people will back single issues one by one. And especially if you're doing something digitally, like you sent me a bunch of Dropbox links to read these first five issues, that's a lot more convenient than having to remember when stuff is coming out and go to your comic shop to pick up single issues. And I'm someone who does not live near a comic shop, not super near. They're probably like mm -hmm. all about 10 to 15 miles away, which isn't terrible. Some people definitely have it a lot worse, but it's still not necessarily convenient to be like going every Wednesday or something to to get single issues. Yeah, the Kickstarter model is so different where like in the direct market at comic shops, like you usually see like sales drop after a first issue, almost double. And then they just keep dropping like every issue after that where Kickstarter, you, you have an opportunity to always bring in new readers and you can, they can always get like all of the issues, like love a new Kickstarter for like issues one through nine for the next two issues. And then I'm always selling like back issues on there. Meanwhile, like if it's like pretty hard to get those back issues, like if they're at issue 10 already, it's hard to kind of get those first 10 from a comic shop. Yeah. So I am definitely guilty of just trade waiting for most things. And then, you know, Marvel and DC, I have their respective apps that I pay yearly for or whatever. So even then I still wait mm -hmm. until there's like at least several issues. So I'm not reading stuff month to month because for me personally, I cannot remember stuff that well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard when you're reading so many stories. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. Well, one, I love having like, I'm just a collector of like physical items. Yeah, I love having same. vinyls. I love having these big hardcover books and softcover books. And it's like, it's just something to that rather than having a bunch of long boxes to like store everything. It's just nice to have those big books. But it is, uh, it is like a much different reading experience. I guess everybody has their own preference. And there are people that love reading monthly and, and backing onto Kickstarter for single issues or reading digital every month. But I, uh, I think I'm, uh, I agree with you here. I'm uh, more of a trade or just like reading the full story. Yeah. And I'll do that thing where I'll buy the first trade of something, read it to make sure I like it, and then I'll buy the rest. So I did that recently with like Gideon Falls and Outcast. I read the first trades of those oh, two yeah. and I was like, all right, I'm not going to read anymore until I get all of the rest of the trades and then I'll reread the first <laughs> trade probably because that's just how my brain works. It's like I need to be able to read stuff all at once. Like I am working my way through the current Nightwing run. And by current, I mean, I started at the beginning of the Rebirth <laughs> launch. So I'm only like halfway <laughs> to where the current issue is. And I was like, maybe 90 plus issues was 
too much right now. <laughs> that's a lot to take on, yeah. right? But that's that's like the world we live in with Netflix where like every series is like bingeable and you can just watch it all at once. You don't have to worry about like that weekly reminder or like even back in the day they used to have like those mid season like cutoffs and then it would like continue like four months later. Like everything's just so bingeable and with digital and with like Amazon where you can like, just get all these books and comic shops and it's just much easier to binge it. But yeah, ninety issue, that's a that's a lot to take in. Yeah, I, I put that on pause, obviously, to read these five issues of Beastlands. And I think... I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I will always put my for fun reading on pause for the podcast reading. <laughs> I do try to keep my priorities straight every once in a while. But with Beastlands, it was such a breeze to read it to. And I don't mean that as a bad thing at all. Sometimes it's nice to be able to just sit down and have fun with something and be like cool, I'm done in five issues for now, obviously. <laughs> but I am a huge fan of like six to 12 issue mini slash limited series things, whatever you want to call it. And even though I obviously just stated that I read very, very long runs of stuff as well, you know, Gideon Falls and Outcast are about six to eight trades each, I believe. So that's still a good amount of issues. But the DC and Marvel stuff gets a little wild. So taking a break from the very, very long superhero stories, and obviously you have creative team shifts that kind of mark a new point in ongoing series and things like that. But I think I've really just been into indie comics a lot more lately because I find them less exhausting, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that six to 12 issues is like a pretty sweet spot these days where you, you don't see many, uh, especially for like indie comics or creator and stuff, you don't see many series that like are going to go over yeah. 100 issues. Like Saga is probably one of the few that's actually like a really long running one. Like now that The Walking Dead and Invincible has ended and stuff. But I mean, as, as a new creator, it's just hard to tell those long form stories. Like even eight volumes or seven volumes or something is pretty hard to get to. So it's a uh, and it's just easier to tell like a more succinct and full story in that like limited number of issues. Yeah. So to dive into Beastlands a little more, because like I said, I keep getting sidetracked here and talking about comics in general. <laughs> oh, it's all good. I love, no, I love the industry talk too. I'm always for it. But where did the idea for Beastlands come from? Yeah. So I grew up in the 90s and uh, I grew up loving stuff, uh, you know, all of Studio Ghibli's catalog, Princess Mononoke's, one of like my favorite films ever. Um, grew up with Pokemon, Digimon, Yu-Gi-Oh! So it's very inspired from all those things I love. Like a lot of that stuff inspires all of my stories and work. But uh, it also has uh, something more meaningful and deeper. I always try to put into my stories just to uh, hopefully connect with readers and make these stories like mean something and matter to me. And for Beastlands, it's very, uh, very much about the theme of like a human and pet bond. Uh, back in 2016, my dog was hit by a car and she survived, but it was uh, very traumatic where I had to like carry her home. I thought she might be dying at the time, but luckily she made a full recovery, but it just took like a lot of extra care in her recovery and having yeah. to carry around and watch her. So I just like bonded with her so much more throughout the experience, uh, more than I thought I ever could have. And uh, I really tried to make that the heart of Beastlands and put that into like the main theme of Beastlands. Well, I'm glad your dog is okay. Thank you. Yeah, she's uh, she's right here next to me. She's six now. She's doing good. She's living life good. She's got a full recovery. She's able to run, go on walks, everything. Love that. And, you know, I love hearing what people's influences are because, you know, I, as a kid, also watched a lot of Pokemon and all that stuff on Saturday mornings, but it wasn't until recently one of my friends got me into actually watching more anime. 
And we're actually doing a spinoff podcast from this one. It's just like 12 episodes of me learning about anime. Oh, that's awesome. So I've been watching, you know, Spirited Away, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, and a lot of those things, and some like studio trigger stuff. And I really had only watched Spirited Away and like the Star Wars Visions show recently before Mm -hmm. diving into this little side podcast. So to hear that, you know, you drew some inspiration from anime, you can definitely see that in this story. And especially with Joe's art, I think a lot of that comes across really well with that sort of, you know, fantastical and magical element to the story. Because, you know, these animals are just so great, too. And it's almost like when you're watching a Miyazaki movie, and it's like, there's a lot of planes in this or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember reading a book about Miyazaki and like, yeah, I think his father worked at like a plane company or something. And that's why he's has like such a fascination with planes. And they are in like almost every one of his movies, you see like some type of flying component. Yeah. And, you know, obviously your love of animals shows through this too, because there's, you know, this whole part of the story that's about, we got to save the keepers. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I was actually thinking about that recently, like, besides Beastlands, like, there's definitely a lot of, like, animal and creatures, like, in all of my stories. And I guess it is very much just my personality and love of animals showing through. Yeah. And how do you go about doing the world building in your stories? Because this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially having watched a bunch of the anime stuff, because, you know, now we're so used to these worlds like Marvel and DC that have been around for decades, the fact that anyone else is able to do any world building outside of like those things in Star Wars is just always so fascinating to me because those are obviously, you know, kind of the gold standard. I would say maybe Star Wars a little more just because continuity has been all over the place for Marvel and DC, depending on what decade you're in. But, you know, Star Wars has been pretty consistent. I know they do have the Legends books that aren't canon anymore, but I'm always fascinated by world building. How did you approach that for Beastlands? Yeah, it's, it's one of the most fun parts of making of writing a story or making comics is that world building where you can uh, you can get too drawn into it and it can uh, take over your life and you can spend months doing it. So you do have to like be careful to uh, to make sure you get to actually like writing the story and, and figuring out the characters and getting to scripts. But you can have a lot of fun in that world building phase uh, where I think it's important to like lay down rules for these worlds and and like my goal is always try to make something original as much as like I, I'm inspired by Beastlands, like I, or I mean by Pokemon and uh, Studio Ghibli and stuff. Like I do want Beastlands to be original and different and hopefully like something new. So I laid down these rules where these, uh, these beasts come to some people, uh, they're companion beasts and they don't have any magical abilities or elemental abilities as cool as that would be. Like I don't want to be too much like Pokemon. I want to be something original. These are more like real life creatures where we take like these different elements of real world animals and mix them together to make something that looks fantastical. Like one of the beasts, Luna, she's got, she's like a panther, but she's Mm -hmm. got these like ram horns and wings. So like when you mix those together, it does look like something unique and fantastic, but these are are still like real creatures and pets where they could live with you for like your whole life, but they could also get sick. They can get injured. They can die. Like you have to be a good caretaker. Uh, so they have that realistic component too. Yeah. And I think the mashup of animals is always fun. I am someone who watches a lot of Lego masters 
and I've watched the American and Australian versions of the show, and I don't remember which one it was in, but basically the challenge one week was to pick two animals and mash them together and, you know, build it out of Legos. And they got some of the most random pairings ever, and it was just so fascinating to see how they made these creatures into Lego creations. Obviously, when you're drawing, it's a lot easier because you yeah, don't have the physical the <laughs> limitations. Mm-hmm. That sounds cool, though. I want to check that out. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to track down which one it was because it's like the Australian one started first. And then when the American one started, it's like they were basically a season behind on doing the same challenges. So like the season two challenges and the Australian one were like the season one challenges sometimes in the American one. I don't know. So my brain gets them mixed up all the time. But that's kind of what this reminded me of. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's fun. Oh, that's I've funny. seen animal mashups recently. Yeah. But Curtis, is there anything else you want to mention about Beastlands that we haven't touched on just yet? No. I mean, it's uh, it's a fun fantasy series. Like you said, It's uh, I think it has a lot of heart. And it's very much about... Uh, about three friends and how much uh, how much you shouldn't take things for granted and uh, a boy trying to right his wrongs and save his friends and beasts. And uh, the Dark Horse trade got delayed a little bit. It'll be out on June 29th with uh, comic shops and then July 12th on Amazon and bookstores. Everything got pushed back like two weeks because of uh, shipping delays due to COVID, which is normal these days, sadly. I, I just got my comps earlier this week, so it was very surreal to like finally see the trade in person, like my first direct market book. Just super proud of it and can't wait for people to get their hands on it. Yeah, well, some of you will have to wait a few weeks before reading it, but I will have links in the show notes so you can easily find Beastlands if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend doing. It is a fun time. And Curtis, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you a bunch for having me. <laughs> 